Last week, one of Australia's leading economists, Professor Warwick McKibben from the Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU, chucked a rock into the economic pool with his statement that the Reserve Bank should stop targeting inflation alone. Now, the RBA has rejected that, but Warwick is a former member of its board, and he's got a loud voice when it comes to central bank matters. So I rang him up and asked him to explain what he's on about, and also to get his views about how the Australian economy is doing. Well, there's a long history in the economic literature that that nominal income targeting is actually a better policy framework than inflation targeting. But with the disinflation uh, in the early 90s, a lot of central banks decided that uh, inflation targeting seemed to be the preferable model, even though it works in, it works well for most things, but it doesn't work well for certain types of shocks in the economy, and certainly not when you have very high levels of debt in the economy. Could you explain to us perhaps the difference between inflation targeting and income targeting? There's a number of differences. Just in terms of how should a central bank respond to a shock, if you distinguish between demand shocks and supply shocks, when you have a demand shock, so demand surges in the economy, both inflation will rise and nominal income will rise. And the policy the Reserve Bank should follow is to raise interest rates to offset the shock. If you have a supply shock uh, in an inflation world, suppose there's a drought, prices rise, output falls. So an inflation-targeting central bank would raise interest rates because inflation is rising and it would actually make the output loss bigger. Whereas if you have a nominal growth target, even though inflation's rising, because output's falling, you would tend not to adjust policy and therefore you wouldn't exacerbate the shock. So um, the Reserve Bank has a something that's very similar to this, and Guy Bell basically said this last week in Adelaide, that what they target is inflation over the cycle, which means they do allow for the fact that a weak economy is going to mean less of a response to inflation. To me, that's right. They're very close to nominal income targeting. I think it's better to then say, well, let's be a nominal income targeter so the market can better understand exactly what we're doing, rather than everybody waiting for the, for, for the exception as to why they might not be raising interest rates when inflation's rising. That sounds really sensible to me. Why do you think they're not doing that? Do you think they're afraid of being seen to not care about inflation? Well, okay, so the second argument uh, is that you you do need some sort of nominal anchor. You need people to have something to hook their um, inflationary expectations on in the economy. And with an inflation target, that's very explicit. Um, Wage setters and businesses, can they know what the inflation rate that the central bank is targeting. I would argue in a normal income world, there's two parts of normal income. There's the inflation component and the real growth component. So to calculate an inflation target, you need some concept of an output gap or what the potential growth rate is. So you actually have to calculate real growth to generate your inflation forecast. So you have to do exactly the same things. My view is if, if we announce a normal income target of 6% and we have a potential growth rate of 3%, it's very clear that the inflation target that's implicit is 3%. So I don't think the anchoring expectations is really a very strong argument. A third argument is that you can measure inflation and it never it never it never gets revised, and that's to me one of the flaws in inflation targeting because the reason inflation never gets revised is because it's an artificial index that gets put together by the statistician. Inflation rates are very different in in the eyes of different consumers. So an elderly person's inflation rate that they experience is totally different to a young person. Now, the reason it never gets revised is because there are many contracts written with indexation in them which require uh, an inflation rate that never gets changed in history. The reality is prices do change, and the reality is we actually don't measure inflation. We do actually measure nominal income. It's what happens every day in the economy when we spend. 
the reality of the world is that we're underneath the inflation targets at the moment. The, the Reserve Bank's target is 2 to 3%. We're well underneath that and everywhere else in the world. Do you think that the Reserve Bank and central banks generally have got their heads around what's going on? The problem is, isn't when things are moving along normally. The problem is when you get very unusual events. So, for example, during the financial crisis, we had this massive adjustment in the world economy which required a very large reduction in real interest rates. But when nominal interest rates hit zero, the only way that you can get uh, real interest rates to keep falling is if inflation expectations rise. If you have central banks saying, we will not let inflation go above 2%, then people will not be thinking that inflation will ever rise above 2%. And therefore, wage earners won't put in for pay rises because they're worried that if they start to earn more, the central bank will raise interest rates and that will cause a recession and they'll lose their job. So it's at the extremes, I think, where this really works. And if we had for example, again, 6% nominal growth target and real growth went to zero, then people would say, well, the bank's going to allow inflation of up to 6%. And therefore, real interest rate expectations will change. And real interest rates could fall quite a lot. And that would be really helpful from a monetary policy point of view. Perhaps we could just go back to basics a little bit. Did inflation targeting begin with Milton Friedman and his statement that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon? Yes. In fact, it goes back even further. People have always argued that the whole role of central banking or monetary policy should be either targeting the price level or the inflation rate, because in the long run, that's what the central bank can control. Historically, before Milton Friedman, central banks were trying to change interest, or actually they had monetary-based targets, where they were trying to increase the money supply to increase prices to reduce real wages, and that was actually a stimulus to the economy. In a sense, they were tricking people. But eventually, people started realising that given rational expectations, revolution and a number of other outcomes, particularly the high inflation of the 1970s, that central banks actually can't change real output in the long run. All they can do is surprise people in the short run, and then eventually this goes away, and eventually it all ends up in higher inflation or higher prices. So the real change came about in the early 90s when Paul Volcker started the big disinflation in the U.S., and other central banks followed suit because they were roughly targeting to the US dollar, which meant when the US put up interest rates, everybody put up interest rates so that their currencies um, wouldn't depreciate too much. And therefore, we had in Australia, for example, a central bank targeting the current account. As it turned out, inflation fell sharply. And the one thing that was good news when everything else was bad news with the recession of 91, the good news was, well, inflation is down. Let's make that the anchor of policy because that's the one thing that we appeared to get right. The first central bank to do it was actually the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, um, who, who were very explicit in using the academic literature to justify the policy framework that they established. Well, in fact, of course, Paul Keating said that was the recession we had to have. But in fact, more or less since Friedman, or certainly since Volcker, all recessions, it seems to me, were caused by central banks. Well, actually, I disagree with Paul Keating that the recession that we had to have, we didn't have to have it. I, re- I resigned from the Reserve Bank over that, at that period because of the high interest rate policy. It was not the recession we had to have. There were many other ways of rebenchmarking uh, inflationary expectations and solving the balance of payments problem that we had. The speculation in the private economy was all a result of a very badly placed monetary policy. And so I think some people have rewritten history. I've got a very clear view of what happened at that point in time. And it clearly wasn't a recession we had to have. And a lot of people lost their jobs, in my view, unnecessarily. Okay, and I'm totally on your side on that. I mean, but it is the case that up until 2008, 
central banks have been trying to keep inflation down and have occasionally gone in and gone a bit hard as a result of that, haven't they? Well, that's right. And again, it, it really is different stories in different countries. So in, in advanced economies, I would argue that it, like Australia, New Zealand, the US, UK, inflation targeting has actually worked very well because the sort of shocks that we were experiencing in the 70s onwards were mostly excess demand shocks. But um, what we see in emerging countries is taking that same argument and making emerging countries through the IMF target inflation rates. And in emerging countries, they're largely supply shocks, big droughts or um, crop failures or big changes in productivity. And an inflation target is the wrong framework for those countries. And so you've seen um, in many cases, and after the financial crisis as well, you saw very tight monetary policy in a lot of places when, in fact, I don't think that was the right policy response. The right response was a mix of monetary and fiscal policy, but um, if your fiscal hands are tied, then you leave it all to the central banks, and inflation targeting isn't the right policy for either a portfolio shock or a supply shock or a country risk shock, uh, as we demonstrated and many others in papers during the 1990s. What do you think of the conversation that's going on at the Federal Reserve about low wages growth and productivity? where they're kind of wondering, firstly, whether low productivity is causing low wages growth, and secondly, they don't know why productivity is low. What do you make of all that? Well, it's a really fundamental debate, and there's a lot of arguments. They're simultaneously determined. So one argument you can make is is that there has definitely been a decline in, in productivity growth in advance in Europe, actually, for the last 30 years. But in the US, it really turned around in the mid-2000s. With low productivity growth, the real rate of interest that's, that's appropriate is a lot lower. So as your growth rate falls, the market or the equilibrium real interest rate actually should be lower. A second argument is that in a world of high risk, and this is actually my what I think is just as important, in a world of high risk, people are unlikely to take make investment decisions because they don't actually understand what the return might be. Why is there high risk in the world? Well, one aspect of it is because of the volatility since from the financial crash of 2009, People are a bit more concerned about financial markets. But a second issue is that there's an enormous amount of government debt and household debt, high leverage in the system with very low interest rates. If interest rates begin to rise, that's going to lead to some fairly big adjustment in asset markets. If governments have to really rein in their enormous debt-to-GDP ratios, that's going to mean someone has to pay higher taxes. And as we've demonstrated in Australia, um, if you're a successful miner, you get taxed. If you're a successful bank, you get taxed. So the, the risk on future investments for the private sector has gone up, both political risk and financial risk. Therefore, you don't invest. And if you don't invest in physical capital, then the return to cap, the return to labour goes down, the real wage goes down. And so that's a secondary factor, which I think is becoming more and more important. The third channel is really the, the artificial intelligence robotics revolution, which is really transforming many parts of the global economy. And so if you're making a 20-year bet with the amount of change that's going on in the system, where do you invest? And so basically you hoard the cash instead of investing it. And then that also brings down the potential growth rate. And then wage setters faced in that world would be very, very uh, be very hard to convince them that they should be putting in for wage increases when their job might be on the line. So again, having the inflation rate higher and, un- and unhinged as you would have in a nominal growth world is a slightly better place to be. It doesn't solve any of these other problems, but it does give you that little degree of freedom that you might actually need during a downturn. Do you think that central banks have been mistaken over the past 10 years in so determinately fighting the prospect of deflation? 
Well, I mean, the only country really where there was a, a serious problem with deflation was in Japan. Both in Europe and the US, it was hard to see that um, people were worried about deflation, but I think, in fact, it's pretty hard to get deflation. It's really easy to get inflation. Part of the problem is the way in which they implemented monetary policy. I, I'm a fan, when you get to the state of Japan or Europe, of what they call helicopter money, which is really the central bank just issuing cash, uh, which, which is directly linked to the government budget, rather than trying to get the financial system to lend more through changing interest rates and, and even through QE. So I think, yeah, I would have gone... Old what the Bank of Japan's doing is buying ETFs and have been for a while now, and it's not working either. Well, what they're doing is buying up every asset in the every asset in the economy. Well, that's, again, the problem with, with a central bank distorting the value of everything is that then no one in the private sector will be investing in anything because you don't know the value. So it's one thing to be buying up certain types of, um, of bonds. It's a totally different story to own most of the share market. And that's what's happening in Japan. And that's a really risky situation because markets are meant to be valuing things so that investors can invest and are allocating capital. But what you're seeing is a complete distortion of the value of things. And that's a real problem because then how do you work out where the best place to put your investment is? But that's why I ask. I mean, isn't in that case in particular, isn't the cure worse than, than the disease? It can be. And the, the simple problem is, not simple, but the problem is that you can't solve the sort of problems we're seeing in the world economy with monetary policy. What you need is a very clear policy, a fiscal framework, which allows some sort of counter-cyclical fiscal policy but constrains the amount of debt in the system. You need some way of preventing asset bubbles from emerging in the economy. You need structural reform so that you get higher productivity growth, a clearer tax system so you know if you're successful you don't actually get taxed away. So you need to move a whole range of government policies. Yet in the end, because of the political malaise globally, you end up having the central bank carrying the can for every single problem in the economy and they really only have one or two instruments, interest rates and some regulatory uh, oversight, and too many targets. And that's eventually what's going to happen is that the central bank actually can't fix it and they won't be able to. Do you think the central banks are a bit desperate now to get interest rates up towards whatever the neutral rate might be so that they can deal with the next downturn? I think that's probably true, but they're also even more desperate for government to enact sensible policy. Uh, in Australia, there's, there's the governors for the last decade have argued the problem in Australia is declining productivity. You need tax reform. You need other reforms in the system. And governments just haven't responded. And in fact, now, fiscally conservative governments are no longer fiscally conservative. And we've got budget deficits, as far as the eye can see, government debt rising, which is OK in a world of zero interest rates. But if interest rates do start to rise back to a natural rate then the amount of interest payments on that debt will skyrocket and that will be a real crunch to the fiscal accounts. And that's the real concern. It's the uncertainty about where we might be heading rather than where we are right now. Or where we are right now, zero interest rates, people should be borrowing like crazy. But if you incur a lot of debt and, and then interest rates change, then you're really in a serious problem. I mean, how do you feel about the Australian economy? Do you think it's fragile at the moment? I think it's fragile in respect to the sort of shocks that might come from overseas. Uh, I think there's still a lot of fragility in the global system. There is a lot of growth in pockets like China and other developing countries. There's a lot of potential growth out there. There's a lot of growth coming from uh, the new technologies. And so I think actual productivity growth will probably start to rise once it's measured properly. The big problem we face in Australia is how do we respond to the structural changes that are going to be coming up, coming through the system from the technology changes? 
what do we do about a housing market that appears by most scenarios to be overvalued, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne? Yeah, where, will the rental rates of properties go up or will the value of properties go down to make it all add up in a financial sense? Those questions, are, my guess is prices will come down in the housing market, but there's a big global factor in there. A lot of foreigners want to buy safe physical assets and Australia is a good place to put your money. So you can't be very sure that, that you know, it's going to be a one-way bet either way, but there's a lot of uncertainty. But we could chug along for quite a long time. There's a lot of potential growth in Australia, our export industries in particular, though we're moving away from mining partly, we are very good at the things that the growing middle class in Asia wants. And so we're really well placed, if we manage it properly, to, to be you know, growing with the emerging countries that are, that are entering the global economy now. So I think potentially we're in a great position. The question is how will it be managed by the politicians? One of the factors in our economic performance that is not that often mentioned is um, population growth, uh, which is sort of dub- roughly double now to what it used to be. Do you think in terms of your suggestion about uh, nominal growth targeting and income targeting that it should be per capita rather than, uh, rather than aggregate, uh, given, given well, the importance of population growth? Well, no, but you, you build the population growth into the real growth projection. So yeah, if, if, if population growth doubles, then you double your real output component of nominal income growth. So it's easily adaptable. It's easier for people to understand the things that you see, like the you know, amount you spend, rather than adjusting it down to a per capita basis. It really, really doesn't matter from a monetary policy point of view. It does matter from evaluating how well the economy is going, because an economy that's growing at you know, 3%, if its population growth rate is 4%, then it's actually shrinking in per capita income terms. And so you do have to be very careful that, that you look at the per capita uh, measures for certain questions like well-being, for example, or how the economy is moving. But in terms of the policy framework, I, it, the per capita adjustment is not necessary. Right. The economy was shrinking for a while in per capita terms, wasn't it? It was. And incomes per capita and particularly were falling. But uh, things have turned around now. And what's interesting with the Australian case, which is very different to most other countries, is that the distribution of income is improving despite what the, um, what the Labor Party has said in the last week or so, uh, the data suggests that certainly since the financial crisis, we've got a better income distribution now than we had uh, 10 years ago. And that's quite different to the rest of the world. And that partly reflects our transfer and tax system. It partly reflects the fact that when there's a boom in the rest of the world and our export markets uh, are doing well, the income from that spreads throughout the economy. So it's not just our exporters that gain, it's the people who service the exporters. And so that combined with the way we do taxes and transfers means we get a better outcome. Not perfect, but much better than most other countries, certainly better than the US. Well, it's been great talking to you, Warwick. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Alan. Happy to be here. That was Professor Warwick McKibben from the Crawford School of Public Policy at Australian National University.